I'm Cassidy Hall. I'm Carl McCollman. I am Kevin Johnson, and we are Encountering Silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by listeners like you. Please visit www.patreon.com forward slash encountering silence to learn how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. Dr. Jacqueline Bussey is an award winning author, professor, theologian, public speaker, and student of life. Her books include Laughter of the Oppressed, Ethical and Theological Resistance, and Wiesel, Morrison, and Endo, and won the National Trinity Prize in 2007. Love Without Limits, published in 2018, and Outlaw Christian, published in 2016, which won the 2017 Gold Medal Illumination Award for Christian Living. Jacqueline teaches religion, theology, and interfaith study classes at Concordia College in Moorhead, Minnesota, where she also serves as the director of the Forum on Faith and Life. Dr. Jacqueline Bussey, welcome to Encountering Silence. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be on the show. So one of the first questions we like to ask our guests is if they could unpack for us their relationship to silence. And do you recall a time where silence was important for you? Can. So a really formative story for me is that for 17 years of my life, from the time that I was 20 to 37, my mom came down with early onset Alzheimer's disease. And eventually, um, you know, very early on, actually, she stopped talking. You know, she had no idea who I was. She had no idea who anybody was. And um, she became silent. And I was her primary caregiver for over a dozen of those years of her illness um, in the summers. And, you know, that was kind of an abrasive encounter with silence for a really long time. And then fast forward to, you know, my mother uh, died in 2007. And I've grappled ever since with, you know, what is her legacy to me? You know, so much of my writing comes out of, you know, the deep love and best friendship that I had with her, but also the sorrow. Sometimes I think I would give anything to hear my mother's voice and I can't hear it. You know, sometimes I try to hear it in my head and this strange thing happens. I I can't hear it, you know? And so recently I went on a um, writing retreat, like a writing residency in which I was working on the, my latest book, Love Without Limits. And it was very quiet. I was in Wyoming and no one else around except for the other residents, a couple of other artists who had received the same residency. But we weren't really talking to each other. You know, we were working. And there was this one day and I really settled in, you know, to the silence. And at first it was terrifying. There was no internet. There was no phone access. Uh, I had to walk two miles to talk on the phone. And I think it was the solitude, you know, that I associated with silence that was really scary at first. But then it became something really beautiful. And that was a story I wanted to tell because something really beautiful happened this one day. So every day 
I lived in silence, basically. The only sound was this creek, you know, that was right by my little cabin there on the on the ranch. And this one day, I thought, I want to write today about what my mother taught me about love. I didn't even think this is going to be in the book. I just thought, I want to make a list of what my mother taught me. And by this time, I'd been, you know, in the residency for maybe like two weeks. So I had a lot of silence, a lot of alone time. And... I started writing and all of a sudden I could hear my mother and I started sobbing, like not like tears Mm -hmm. of sadness or grief as much as like tears of joy. And my pen just went and I had thought, I'll write 10 things, you know, that my mom taught me about love. And instead I wrote 40 and the entire time, Like I'm just, you know, crying so much. Somebody even knocked on my door and, you know, one of the other uh, artists was like, we were going to go do this thing. And I could not even answer the door. Like I was sobbing. I was like, I no, I can't talk to you right now. That thing we're going to do, I can't go do it. And I just continued. And it ended up that that is that list of things my mother taught me that I only found within that silence is actually in the book. And it's actually the part of, and it wholesale, like it's unedited. It's exactly the things that I felt that I heard, you know, and I know that sounds weird, (laughs) but truthfully, truthfully, I had to enter into a silence to encounter, to break through my mother's silence. I I guess that's how I, how I would Mm. phrase it. And it was very surreal. And I remember reflecting on it later and kind of imagining that, you know, I had always, I'm an extrovert. So, so silence for me is really hard and I associate it with aloneness. And what I realized was, is I'm not alone, you know, spiritually when I'm silent, I'm not even alone when I'm alone because what I encountered within my soul were, was not even just my mother. It was all the people that I had thought I had lost. And they were kind of like, It was like I was the bar at a cocktail party and they were kind of all like elbowing their way over to talk to me. And I remember thinking, seeing like that my mom was coming too, you know, that she wanted to talk to me and be there as well. I know that may sound a little bit strange. It was beautiful. And people like that part of the book the best. It Honestly, it's the part where people really respond the most. And I feel that I was a straw, you know, for what my mother or for what God or the universe, whatever we want to call that mystical power, what needed to be said. And I I love the way you describe your writing experiences, you know, kind of this meeting place of knowing what you needed to write. And I wonder if if silence at all is typically a part of your writing practice, or was this kind of a new experience for you? Yeah, thank you, Cassidy. No, it it is. What I have learned is that as an extrovert, I have to enter into a long-term place of sequestering and silence in order to write. And the reason is, because if I can talk to you about it, then I'm not going to talk to the page. But if I ha- you know, can shut that out, then I will talk to the page for lack of anyone else to talk to, you know, because I'm a talker. It's how I process. And so silent, I've, and now, you know, I'm on my third book and the next will be my fourth book. I know what I need, Cassidy. So I know what I need is silence. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so now I just, I know it right away, I have to do things like that. You know, I have to leave town, uh, you know, on my last sabbatical, that's what I did. I was not at home. I could not be reached, 
you know, via email and all that, because I really have to go to that place where I can hear. Hmm. Jacqueline, I really think Love Without Limits is a wonderful book. I'm thrilled to have this conversation with you and to be able to share this book with the Encountering Silence uh uh, community. And there's a lot I could say, but, but just kind of piggybacking on, you know, what you were just saying. One of the things that I loved about this book was how you connected love with story. And, you know, one of the lines that really kind of jumped out at me, and I, I can't even remember if this was your line or if you were quoting someone else, but the line where you said that an enemy is someone whose stories we don't know, and then you also suggested that many times one of the problems is, is an enemy is somebody with whom we only have one story. And, you know, and so to bring that back to silence, it's like if we have silenced somebody's stories, then it is so much easier to scapegoat them or to enemize them. I don't know if that's a word, you know, to, to turn them into an enemy. And um, so... I really love this sense that that part of the journey to loving without limits, part of the journey to Jesus's radical vision for love with no exceptions, as you so beautifully put it, is this journey to creating a space where people's stories can be told and can be heard and can be shared and can be celebrated. You know, and I think that's one of the gifts of silence is that it, it creates a space where we can listen, because if we want to hear one another's stories, we need to be able to listen. So not really a question here. It's just more an appreciation. I want to thank you so much for, um, for that particular, um, insight. One of many I found in your book. Thank you. Yeah. And, and I want to echo that and mention that, uh, a previous guest on the podcast, Jessica Mesman said, said of love without limits that she said, I want to press this book into the hands of every Christian who's despaired of our faith being choked by narrow moralism, prejudice, nationalism, and all those who sought Jesus and were greeted by a door slammed in the face instead of a seat at his banquet table. And obviously, you know, for those of us who have read the book, Love Without Limits has had a bumpy ride. Could you share a little bit about that that bumpy ride and perhaps the toxic silence you faced in that time? Absolutely, I can. And I think it's an important story because it's emblematic of where we're at in our larger culture today, which is those we disagree with, we just want to silence and censor and reject them rather than actually have a conversation. And so mm -hmm. it's rampant. So yeah, basically what happened was I was in a, a contract uh, with a major Christian publisher that I'm sure everyone has heard of. And it's one of the top five. And I had agreed with them that I would be taking a year's leave off of my regular job at Concordia College and writing a book for them on Love Without Limits. And they had seen the proposal, they approved it, they were very excited, and long story short, it was a book I wrote during the election year. And in August of 2016, they loved the idea, and by the time it was completed in 2017, they still loved the book, but they told me that I would have to cut major sections. It was over 4,000 words from mm. a chapter that was about my Muslim friends and another chapter in which I told some loving and humanizing stories about my LGBTQ friends. And mm. long story short, I refused to do that. You know, they tried to seduce me in different ways into to making those cuts. They said, oh, you can talk about those things in your blog, you know, just not in the book. And I said, 
there's a little thing called integrity that would keep me from ever doing that. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, I refused to do it. Then they told my agent and I, they said, well, if she refuses to make these cuts, then we paid her to write the book. They'd paid me an annual salary. My advance was an annual salary basically for the year. They said, well, she owes us the entire amount back. Otherwise, we own the rights to the book. And it was not, of course, an amount of money that could be paid back, given that obviously, you know, my husband and I were both artists. We lived off that book during that year. And it was devastating because I lost the book. I lost the year. I lost the rights to the book. And worst of all, I lost hope. Now, I'm not particularly proud of that, but I did until, and this is a story about silence, until one day, maybe two months, it was over two months had gone by. And I fell into a depression. You know, I was ashamed. I didn't know how to tell my school what had happened. I didn't know how to tell my friends whose stories I'd been asked to delete that I lost my contract with this company, with this major publisher because of their story. I mean, I just became, it was became so messy, you know, and convoluted. Mm. I got depressed. And then there was this one day that this one friend said that one thing that just pierced my silence. She said, you know, Jacqueline, they just want you to shut up and disappear. And you've given them exactly what they wanted. And I just, it was as if someone had struck me. And I thought, oh my gosh, she's right. And that's when my feistiness kicked in. And it was like, wait a minute, I'm not that person. I teach my students about toxic shame every day and how you have to tell your real story, even if you're ashamed. And I, and I was like, oh, no, you did not. So I went <laughs> I out the duct tape and I wrote censored in a black Sharpie. And I took this selfie of my face. It's like the ugliest picture ever. And it's like, it's so such a close up of my face. And I wrote a little blog. Like I broke the silence. I sat down and I told the story of what happened. I didn't name the publisher because I did not need to name the publisher. This story is not about them. Uh, I wanted to, it's about what's wrong with our culture right now. So I, I wrote this whole thing. And by the end, I realized, oh my gosh, I thought that they took everything. Like it felt like that to me. There's just another example of how breaking the silence is healing. Because by the time I finished writing, I had this revelation, which was, Oh, sure, they took they took everything, but there's one little thing they didn't take that they'll never be able to take, and that is my love without limits. <laughs> and so, the, I mean, I know that sounds obvious, but, you know, like when you're in pain, sometimes you just don't get it. And so the last sentence of the piece I wrote was, love's not a candle, it's the freaking sun. Oh, yeah. and, you know, my point mm-hmm. to them was like, good luck trying to blow out my love, you know, and our love, because it's never going to work. It's like trying to blow out the sun. So I posted that, and it went viral. And the end result was that it sold the book to another publisher in 24 hours of that post. And that's not how publishing works. You know, it takes months and weeks and everybody has to read it. But, you know, Fortress Press, they read it. And within 24 hours, they made an offer of about, you know, 60% of what my advance had been. So it was enough that we could get out of that hole. We could Mm. buy the rights to the book back and... It was just such an incredible story of how how I could ever could have forgotten that the right remains to you, that you can always tell your story. You have no idea how healing that could be. 
And there was serendipity yeah. too. His wasn't your yeah. agent sitting next to an editor from Fortress yeah. at a conference or something? And yeah, absolutely. You know, the um, same press, the same senior acquisitions editor from that same press. What so people tagged the CEO of Fortress Press like on my on my that little post, yeah. but I didn't. And the CEO tried contacting me, but I didn't see it because it went into that weird file where people who are not your Facebook friends goes. Yeah. And so then the senior acquisitions editor was nine hundred miles from his office and his house, seated right next to my agent, whom he did not know was my agent. And I pop up on his phone on a reshare of a reshare. He turns to my agent at this writing conference and says, hey, do you know who Jacqueline Bussey's agent is? My <laughs> <laughs> agent was like, what is that picture? He was like, not very happy with me because I mean, I asked to do that. It was like my private page, you know? So my agent was like, oh my gosh, what is that? But yes, we do have a book that you could help us buy back from this other press, you know? So it was, it was clearly, clearly the universe speaking. Completely a God moment for me, you know, as a person of faith. And it was just incredible. And I only wish I'd broken my silence sooner. <laughs> and I, I love that you put the picture in the book, too. I That's did. fantastic. I did, yeah. And, and everywhere I go speak, end. I show it on the, I like on a, you know, on the screen and people always gasp because they're like, that doesn't even look like you. You look horrible. I'm like, <laughs> of course, that's the picture that went viral. <laughs> well, I mean, it's kind of nice symbolism too. You know, we all do look horrible when we're censored. That's right. That's exactly it. So I, I'd like to follow up a little bit because based upon how we've described things so far, other than toxic silence, was silence at all part of kind of your spiritual practice? And we've already heard now it's part of your kind of artistic practice now. You realize, you said, I write three books and now I know what I need in order to be a writer. And so silence is a creative, fruitful space for you. Have you found that silence is a fruitful space spiritually, prayerfully, et cetera? Or is that still kind of not your personality and not where you go? Yeah, well, I guess I would have to clarify that for me, writing is prayer. So I, I wouldn't separate out sort of my creative life from my spiritual life just because the way that I have learned to heal, you know, from grief and loss and metabolize those losses is through writing. Mm. And I don't separate that out because I do feel like the like the uh, writer Julia Cameron, you know, she's like, you, you have to think of yourself as a straw, you know, for right. God, for for the universe and what needs to be said can, can come to you through that straw. And I had a note card on my um, wall while I was writing this last book that said, be the straw, because I felt the world is a very, very thirsty place. And I, and I don't mean that just creatively, I mean, spiritually. So I guess for me, it's hard to kind of, you know, separate out a, a little bit of what you're saying, because my spiritual life is my writing life. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody has their way of prayer and Mary Oliver, one of my very favorite poets, whom I read um, almost every day, you know, particularly when I'm writing, I should, I should say that I read poetry every mm -hmm. day as part of my writing devotionals. I, I call them writing devotionals, but they're just my devotional, you know? And so I will read, it sounds odd, I know, because I write nonfiction. I don't write poetry. I don't write fiction, but I read poetry every morning. And then I go into doing some of my own writing. And I think it just helps me to, to be a better writer. You know, I, I want my writing to be 
not like other academics, not even like my own previous academic writing. I think it should be poetic and accessible. So I actually also have, I should mention, a loving kindness practice that I have learned from Buddhism and my Buddhist friends. I have a meta practice that I do. And of course, that's outwardly silent. But in my mind, I'm starting with myself, sending loving kindness to myself, then to somebody I love, then to somebody I don't even know, like somebody I just saw on the bus, uh, you know, and then to the person whom I'm having a hard time loving, and then to all sentient beings. I do that regularly. And I do consider that a practice of silence, because if you looked at me, you wouldn't know my mind is doing that. And I'm doing that often when I'm very um, stressed out or having a hard time in these politically divided times with something someone is saying, and I, I will literally immediately start sending them loving kindness because I'm not feeling it. So it's, it's a way that I counter sort of my inner tendency not to love with limits. Yeah, so my tendency to love without limits, you know, uh, with limits, sorry, my tendency to love with limits. And I want to love without limits, but personally, I need, I need God for that. <laughs> I need something bigger than myself because I'm not very good at it. Jacqueline, we, we joke that Mary Oliver and Thomas Merton are mentioned nearly ep every episode. <laughs> and I wonder if, if you could tell us, you know, some other influential poets or writers or musicians or artists that have been nurturing for you in your journey. Yeah. Oh, I sure can. Thank you for that question. I really love Rumi as well. So another standard for me is the reading, you know, in my writing devotionals, as I call them, which are spiritual devotionals too, is reading Rumi. Uh, who doesn't love Rumi, you know, and his idea that um, silence is the language of God and all the rest is just poor translation, you know. I, I really love that. And that kind of brings me to my other major influencers, which I would have to say stem a little more from my academic background. And that would be Elie Wiesel, the Holocaust survivor, Nobel Peace Prize winner. He has a lot to say about silence and the silence of, of bystanders and how how awful it is when we we don't we don't stand in solidarity um, and speak out, you know, for those who've been shoved to the shadows, those who are persecuted and marginalized. And so he's just a, a spiritual mentor to me. I, I had met him in person. He was very loving and caring about my work. So that's just a huge influence because he talks so much about silence. And then secondly, I would have to say Shusako Endo, who is a Japanese author. His best-selling novel is entitled Silence. And so my first book, which was on the function of laughter within oppressed and marginalized groups was actually has a third of the book is actually on Shusako Endo's silence. And so what I get from both Endo and Elie Wiesel is this idea and Rumi too, right? That there is something that I think we have to be more authentic about within our faith traditions, particularly myself as a Christian. And that is the silence of God and the way that that is not always pretty that so many times when we suffer trauma or oppression or persecution or abuse, you know, our culture's toxic silence is compounded by the fact that when we turn to God, as Elie Wiesel often did, or Shisako Endo, what we hear again is silence. And I just want us to be honest about that, you know? So my second book, Outlaw Christian, spends a ton of time 
really addressing that and just being honest with one another about the fact that sometimes our grief leads to an experience of the seeming silence of God and that that is really, really hard and that we have to not judge one another for the experience of that inaccessibility. Our conversation will return after this brief moment of silence. Please take a breath and be present in this 30 seconds of silence. I'm an academic myself. I'm a professor. I love your discussion here because it is, it could get academic and, you know, I don't want it to be too academic, but I, I think there is something to set, be said about kind of the apophatic nature of, of the divine here that you're talking about. And what does that mean as Christians? We're very quick to say we know what God is and we know God's will and we, you know, we do this very quickly. And I think it's really important that Endo and others pull us up and remind us that the God is ultimate mystery. Uh, words and language fail us, and that we need to have a strong sense of humility to be able to listen to the voice that's calling us to love without limits, as you're you know, suggesting. And if we don't hear that voice, then what we're going to do is we're going to hurt each other, and we're going to cause a lot of harm. So, and and as we see in the Hebrew Scriptures, that voice has been described as a sound of sheer silence or a still small voice. Right. Yeah. So. Exactly, exactly. Uh, Jacqueline, you hail from very close to where I live, from Peachtree City, Georgia, and you have um, roots, your family roots in um, Jacksonville, Florida. So a little shout out to the American South here. But <laughs> now you, um, you, are, you call Fargo, North Dakota home, and you teach at Concordia, is that right, in Minnesota? Yes. So... I mean, we could we could talk about weather, but maybe we won't. But what I would like to talk about or to hear from you is your sense of silence and place. And and again, defining silence in the broadest possible way. But but how maybe your relationship with silence or with the mystery or with the heart of creativity has evolved from your childhood in the South through to your your young adult years and now to living in the upper Midwest. Any thoughts there? My first thought is that there is so much sound in the South, you know, like there's always birds and there's always, you can always be out in nature. And what I think about now is that there is nothing more silent than a Fargo winter when it is minus 50. Like that is a silence that as a Southern person, I had never encountered. And I, I tell a story in Love Without Limits of the first day I saw a fly, you know, after seven months of winter, you know. But what I didn't tell, but is also true, is the first day every spring, you know, we have seven months of winter in Fargo, just to be clear. it We already had six inches of snow on the ground on October 1st. And that we will often have that same snow until the end of April. 
And it's just so quiet. I mean, everything has migrated, you know, and, and I think about the way in which the first bird that I hear in the spring, like the birds always know first that spring is coming and they'll come even when the snow is still there. And, and so you hear them and you and my friend is indigenous, you know, is native American. He said to me, he's like, Jacqueline, the birds know if the birds are here, spring is here. And I'm like, there's so much snow. How can I, be? you know, so I, I guess what, what I'm saying is it's just that kind of, it, it is a complete metaphor for all the winters of our discontent, I think. And I go through a lot of those sort of soul wise and you do have to listen. You do have to wait, wait and long for the spring and the spring, it does come but I think we have to be really careful to allow people to say how long it is in coming sometimes. I'm thinking too, as you were saying before about how, when you were writing that there was nothing but the sound of the Creek or the brook out and back, you know? And so it, there is a sense too of place there for you. Uh, just. Yeah. <laughs> Earlier in the conversation, um, you talked, you, you said writing is prayer. Yes. And, and earlier before that in the conversation, you seem to kind of imply or suggest that silence is writing. Would it be <laughs> safe? Would it be safe to say that silence is writing and writing is prayer for you? Wow. That's much better than I ever would have stated. Well, well it's going to be your quote. So it's but, your but, quote. <laughs> but it is. I mean, and being on this podcast is really helping me like draw these things together that I don't usually draw. I mean, people don't usually ask me about silence. So I just want to give you a huge shout out for having the conversation, have this center because yes, is my answer. You're, you're having to see that connection in a way that, that I maybe didn't before. And, and you know how Mary Oliver always says that, you know, prayer is paying attention. Mm -hmm. And so for me, how do I pay attention is I have to stop talking. You know, I, I have to start listening. That's how I have grown or hopefully attempt to grow, I should say, in compassion for others is by hearing by hearing their stories. And that's changed me as a person. So, yeah. I would like to jump on that because I, that's the part of the book that I want to thank you for. Um, the book does a wonderful job of, uh, you know, you're an academic and yet it doesn't have an academic voice. It's a story. It's narrative. And so you said before you don't write fiction, but you really write narrative so well that the stories of the people that you're that you were reporting about, that you wanted their stories out there, they were so alive for me. Uh, they jumped off the page. Like I, I felt like I knew them, and and so and it, it's horrible because I don't know them, and I feel like I, I'm 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 assuming too much. But you, but I think that says something about you that you did listen. And that you were able to allow for that voice to come through, you were you were the straw. So that's it's it's lovely. So is out of the book. I know this is horrible to do for an author, but along those lines, is there one story that really speaks for you? I probably know. That's like asking the parent which which kid they love the most. But is there <laughs> is there one story that kind of comes back to you that you feel kind of that, or maybe they rotate. Maybe it's just for today. It would be different every day, maybe. But for right now. Is there a story that really speaks to you that you would can almost like if someone who hasn't read the book, you just say something about that story right now? Yeah. Oh, well, first, just let me say how beautiful and redemptive it is for me to hear you say that you feel like you know them, 
the, pe the people that who uh, entrusted me with their sacred story and allowed me to share that in the book. Because of course, that was my goal. My goal is to introduce people who maybe don't have a Muslim friend, maybe they don't have a queer friend, maybe they don't have a trans friend, to the people that I know, because I think they're such amazing humans and they help me love bigger and better. So it's beautiful that you say that. And whenever my husband travels with me and I'm speaking on the book, people come up to him and they hug him and they're like, I feel like I know you because of love yeah. without money, you know? Yeah. And the and the thing is, my husband really appreciates that because, mm. you know, they do. I mean, they, they, there is something about him that is very profound that they actually really know. So I just think that's really great. So which story? I would have to say that today, and, and I, I value all the stories so much, and I wouldn't want to choose from among my friends, right. you know, right. um, as, you, as you mentioned. But the biggest cut from the book was, is I think the story that, it was obviously such an important story to me, and it was um, fascinatingly awful to me that that my publisher wanted every word of that story cut. So that's the story that I would have to pick, and that is simply the story, the true story of my neighbors who decided that they would adopt a special needs child, mm -hmm. and that special needs child was born in prison. And his mother was, you know, addicted to various drugs, including crack. And she also um, was an alcoholic. And so, of course, this baby, Elijah, was born with many, many, um, you know, challenges and some special needs along the way. And these were our immediate neighbors, you know. And so we watched them raising this child. And to us, it was love without limits. I can remember one day they came to the door and they're like, Jacqueline, will you just watch him for 10 minutes while I sleep on your porch because I'm so exhausted. Aww. And to me, this was so beautiful because, you know, it taught that lesson that, that the, and, and they are Christians, you know, it taught that lesson that love is, is, um, you know, it's not about bloodlines. It's about love lines. And, and I just felt like they taught me that more than anyone. And they happen to be two gay men. And so my neighbors who adopted the special needs baby are gay. And that was the story that my publisher said, we have to cut all of it, every single word. In fact, they took the liberty of rewriting those two chapters of the book. They didn't even let me do it. They, they literally censored it. They cut it and they mailed it to me. And it was horrific. And when they cut so much, I don't have this in the book, so you can only know this through this podcast. One of the things that they did when they did that, they cut that story, and that was basically the chunk of that whole chapter, right? So that chapter didn't stand up anymore, and they cut tons from the chapter of introducing my Muslim friends to the reader as well. And when they did that, when they rewrote it and sent it to me, they combined it into one chapter. Now, that didn't make any sense because the chapters were had names after named after real people, you know, in my life. But now when those stories were cut, you couldn't have those same titles, right? Because those people don't exist in the book anymore. So they renamed the chapter, and this is what they renamed it. All capital letters, OTHERS. And the minute I saw that was the minute I knew it was over. I started crying. That was page one of their rewrite, mm -hmm. and I knew we were done. I knew it would never happen. I started crying, and I said to my husband, I, I, he heard me crying. He comes running up the stairs. He's like, oh my gosh, what's wrong? And I'm like, you have to look at these edits. And I pushed the laptop over to him so he could see the first page where they retitled their combined chapter, you know, censored chapter. And I said, honey, you know, there's only one choice, right? Meaning I was not going to do it. And he goes, there's only one choice. 
So that's the story that I would pick. That's the story I would pick because I'm going to tell that story until the day I die. <laughs> I, because that's how important it is to me. So That's horrifying. Like, that's it's, just absolutely horrifying. Right? You see how, like, it was not really a choice to not to, I mean, I, people say, how did you make that choice? I'm like, that's not a choice. Like, you don't delete the people that you love. That's just not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. There still is courage, though. And I really admire your courage and, and thank you on behalf of all your Muslim friends and your LGBT friends and, and all people who have been othered in any way, shape or form in any context. Cause I think you did it for all of them, which means for all of us really. Yeah. yeah. Well, my, the story I wrote that really touched my heart was the story of Jess Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and of course you were being very, again, very vulnerable in telling that story. And, you know, and, and as you told the story and then you kind of moved on and I'm like, what happened to Jess? What happened to Jess? <laughs> I was so happy you, you circled back around to that at the end of the chapter and it, you know, and, and it, it ended so beautifully and it just was, Good. it was, a, yeah. I was very touched when I read that story. So. Thank you. And a cool update on that. That's also not in the book. Recently I was traveling and I got to see her in person. We got yeah. to dinner and it was amazing. And like I say, I hadn't seen her for, I think it was, you know, gosh, more than 35, 40 years, probably uh-huh. 35, most likely. And it was just really amazing to, um, to be with her. Yeah. It was incredible. So, so thank you for that. Cause I love that story too. And all that she taught me. Jacqueline, earlier in the conversation, you mentioned that you talked to your students every day about shame. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit to the relationship between silence and shame and how that's a kind of a form of silencing and really just why that work is important to you, why talking about shame is important to you. Yeah. One of the things that I've noticed uh, in the last few years of my life is grief shaming. I think we grief shame folks. You know, people uh, maybe need to talk about something that traumatic that happened to them. And yet we have a whole host of things in our culture that we deem just too taboo to bring up in good company and particularly to bring up in church, you know, and I like to say, and I talk about this in Outlaw Christian, that it seems to me, I sometimes imagine that almost everyone I'm meeting it carries around a a secret tiger of shame of some kind and some type of grief that's just too taboo to talk about. And I think that those secret tigers, you know, that are just clawing inside at our insides to get out, I think that they have names, you know, they have names like sexual assault and addiction and abuse and mental, mental health and discrimination. Uh, I, I could go on, right? But these are things that, at least in my sort of church lifetime, I've never heard a sermon ever that was about sexual assault or anything like that. So one of the things that I try to do all the time, you know, with students is like, let's go there. You know, let's keep it real. Let's be authentic. Let's talk about the things that we're kind of told elsewhere. Ooh, you know, please, please don't bring that up. And one of my incentives for doing that comes from a conversation that I was actually 
um, having uh, with my husband, who is a survivor of sexual assault, and I'm a survivor of attempted sexual assault, but my husband is a survivor. And I was talking to him one day about that. And I was on a podcast, ironically enough. And I was, it was one of the first times I'd ever talked about it. And I was finding it really hard to talk about, even though he had given me permission to write about that briefly in Outlaw Christian because he wanted to overcome the shame of silence. And he gave me permission and wanted me to do that. And I remember I walked downstairs and I was like, wow, I was like, this must be so hard for you to talk about because it's hard for me, you know, to talk about. And he was putting dishes into the dishwasher and he set down the dish and he looked me straight in the eye and he said something that changed my life forever about shame and silence. And he said, you know what? He said, it's only hard to talk about this if I accept the shame that other people want to put on me. And he was like, and I refuse. <laughs> and it's just a complete mic drop moment. I, I repeat that all the time when I'm on the road. I don't always say who it was who told me that because sometimes we don't have time for that story. But I think my husband is an amazing person, you know, the degree to which he is willing to have that be out there, you know, because he's like, we have to overcome toxic shame. And the only way that's going to happen is if people can say, oh, you know what? Me too. That's happened to me too. And that's how we get rid of this idea that we're to blame for all the horrible things that other people have done to us. How did it ever happen that we have to be the ones who are ashamed and silent about the things other people have done that harmed us? That is nuts. And the only way to stop it is to start speaking out. So that, thank you for the question, because that's just something I really, really want everyone to hear me say, that sometimes the silence must be broken, because without that, there is no me too. There's no comfort mm -hmm. knowing that we're not alone. Wow. Beautifully put. Amazing story. Not, not just a mic drop, a, di a dish drop. Right. I can't stand yeah. this down because I think it's like going to yeah. be like, whoa, I, I'm going to yeah. drop this. Like, you know, like I can't stand this, you know. So, yeah. Right. <laughs> Thank you. Mm. Yeah. You are, um, you're the director of the Forum on Faith and Life. Uh, right. what is, could you explain a little bit about what that is? Because I, I don't know a lot about that. Yeah. Thank you for that question. So I am the inaugural director of the Forum on Faith and Life at Concordia. And so I was asked to basically start that office. And I was recruited from another institution to come and do that. And it makes me so proud of my school because we began the Forum of Faith and Life eight years ago, and it is our interfaith resource center. It's an interfaith peace building center right there in the middle of Fargo. And we have gotten national attention, you know, for the work that we're doing. We're one of only 15 schools in the nation that offers an actual degree an interdisciplinary minor in interfaith studies, in interfaith peace building. And so it's one of our signature programs. And the reason we did it was, and this was predates me, so I'm so grateful to Concordia for this. Concordia wanted to have be proactive, right? Within our um, society of Fargo-Moorhead there in our town, we have a lot of growing diversity. We have more new Americans, meaning immigrants and refugees, than per capita than any other state in the United States, North Dakota. And people don't know that. You know, we have 6,000 Muslims in Fargo-Moorhead. And Concordia wanted to be at the forefront of let's 
start building relationships. Let's start building peace before there's any conflicts, you know, or anything like that. Let's actually bring people together and have friendships. <laughs> and so kind of my job is professional friendship maker. Mm. It's a lot of what I do. It's a lot of what I do, you know. I host like ask an atheist panels or like meet your Muslim neighbor events. We all go to the mosque and we had about 400 people came to one of the most recent open houses there. And it's beautiful work. And it gives me so much hope to do every day. Jacqueline, you have been absolutely wonderful to have yeah. on the podcast. Yeah. And thank you so much for joining us. I always know it's a good conversation when some of the stories you were telling, I just filled with tears multiple mm -hmm. times mm -hmm. um, when you were speaking. So thank you so much for your vulnerability and honesty with us and just, yeah, sharing sharing your story and sharing your work with us. Yeah, um, thank you. Thank you for love. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Don't forget your quote, silence is writing and writing is prayer. That's right. Thank you for listening to the Encountering Silence podcast. If you enjoy our ongoing conversation about the beauty of silence and its meaning in our lives, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or at our website, www.encounteringsilence.com. You can subscribe to our email list at our website. Connect with us on social media, on Twitter at Silence Podcast, or on Facebook at Encountering Silence. And please visit www.patreon.com forward slash encountering silence to become a patron of this podcast. Your financial support will allow us to continue creating new episodes and spreading the message of how vital silence is to our social, spiritual, and physical well-being.